little pastor was in his church one Sunday morning and he was going to preach about, uh, about enemies and loving our enemies and how important it is to love our enemies. And so he says, before I begin this morning, I want to ask anybody out there today, um, if you'll take out a piece of paper and a pen and, and write down a list of your enemies. And he says, I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. He says, I'm probably going to have to cut this off after about three minutes because some of y'all are going to be writing a whole lot of names on that list. And so he, he gives everybody a couple of minutes to kind of rest and to, to write and do whatever. And he looks up and he sees this sweet little old Miss Mabel sitting right back there at the very back of the church, uh, near the back door. Easy for her to kind of waddle in and sit down so she didn't have to take too many steps. And she didn't write a single thing. And first he wanted to make sure she was awake. And so he thought to himself, well, I've got to figure out, you know, what's a way to kind of find out whose names are on what list without really calling anybody out. And he says, well, I'll just, I'll just ask a simple question is there anybody in this room that doesn't have a single enemy? And if you do, raise your hand right now because I want to talk to you about that this morning. He looked around the room and little Miss Mabel raised her hand back there in the very back of the church. And it really kind of bothered him a little bit because he's like, I, I can't let her just lie to us like this, but do I call this little sweet little old lady out? And he says, you know, Miss Mabel, I've known you a long time. Would you come up and just tell us how you've managed to be 98 years old and not have a single enemy in your life? And so as she makes her way to the front of the church with her walker, she, she, she starts making her way, and the pastor starts telling everybody about Miss Mabel, that, that she was born in 1902, and that she had uh, 10 other siblings, and that she was twice a widow and, and never had any children of her own. And, and, and he's telling all about her history, and she comes up, and, and he says, Miss Mabel, would you just bless us this morning and tell us how it is that in 98 years of living on this earth that you don't have a single enemy? And she says, Pastor, as you said, I had 10 siblings and I have two husbands. And you know what? The key to not having any enemies is I outlived every last one of those awful people. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes when we have enemies or disagreements in our lives, particularly with our family, instead of doing the biblical godly thing and trying to resolve that, we try to outweigh them. We try to outlive them if we can. We either try to outlive them in what we do each and every day, or we physically try to outlive them and just hope that maybe I'll live longer than they will, and once they're gone, I'll somehow have some sort of freedom or life or energy or excitement. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like to live my life now and not wait till I'm 98 and hope that I've only got a couple of years left without all those awful people in my life. And to be perfectly fair, I would imagine, and I know this might shock you just a touch, I'm probably on someone's awful person list, as are you. Wouldn't you agree? Sadly, many of us are on someone's awful person list by someone who lives in our own home. And maybe you bounce on and off that list on a regular basis. That's kind of part of what being family is all about. Maybe you have siblings or, or parents or cousins or, or someone in your family that, that things got so awful that you no longer associate with them and no longer spend any time with them. Now, I know not all of you have brothers and sisters, and not all of you have brothers and sisters that are still with you, but I guarantee you, those of you who do have brothers and sisters, you could probably dish this morning on how terrible they were to you growing up as children. Parents who have children, you could probably tell us all kinds of stories about how loving and wonderful and caring and sweet and honoring your children are to one another. Isn't that true? I mean, particularly on road trips, right? I mean, you know how great kids behave in the back seat? And that smell comes from the back seat. It's not the smell of siblings loving one another. 
That's pure concentrated evil in the back seat. That's all that is. Truth of the matter is, throughout all of history, even from the very beginning, we can look throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and we see where siblings had problems with one another. From the get-go, Cain and Abel is a great example. Cain having killed his brother. If you look throughout all the rest of the Bible, you'll see all kinds of different examples of siblings not getting along with one another. Dr. James Dobson wrote a, many a great book, and he's a, he's a great authority, I believe, on parenting and, and on family. And he wrote in, in his book, uh, uh, The Strong-Willed Child, he said this. He says, little children, and older ones too, are not content to just hate each other in private. They attack one another like miniature warriors, mobilizing their troops and probing for a weakness in the defense line. They argue, hit, kick, scream, grab toys, taunt, tattle, and sabotage the opposing force. Does that sound like anybody's family? Does that sound like your kids? Does that sound like your siblings, maybe, perhaps? Does that sound like you sabotaging, hitting, kicking, moving your troops, finding your defenses? Y'all ever play the game, I'm not touching you? Until the other one gets so upset and screams, Mom, he's not touching me. I mean, it's just a weird thing, right? I'm not looking at you. Mom, he's not looking at me. It's like, didn't you want him to not look at you? Wasn't that the goal? And it's like there's, there's always, especially in large families too, there's always that one sibling who really knows everybody's buttons to push, right? And they're the stealth one because they never seem to get any trouble. Now, all the other siblings are probably chiming in on this, right? You never get in on the him. He never gets a spank and he never gets in trouble. You, uh, am I the only one who grew up with one of those siblings? Parents, quick tip, as you read through the Old Testament, which I encourage you to do so on a regular basis, and for those of you who are the firstborn child in your family, I want you to know this, and this is just an unfortunate reality, is that when you read through the Old Testament, what you'll see time and time again is that parents have difficulties with their children, particularly teaching them how to love one another, and firstborn siblings, believe it or not, have been a target of the enemy for a long, long time. You can read every example throughout the Old Testament, and you'll see where the firstborn had a target on their back and that the enemy was going after them because he wanted to take them down notch by notch. And so if you're a firstborn child, I just want to really encourage you this morning to listen to some of this and understand that the birth order is important for a lot of reasons, but also that you have a great opportunity to set a great example. Last week I talked to you a little bit about God's vehicle of the family being used to grow his kingdom, and I still believe that to be true, and I think that we want to kind of build on that just a little bit this morning about the family being so important to us in our spiritual life as well as all other aspects of our life, and that God gave us the family that we have. And I know some days we don't always appreciate that God gave us this family, but he did. And remember, you're part of that family too, so sometimes your family may be struggling a little bit too to go, God, why did you give me this brother or this sister or this cousin or this aunt or this uncle or this mom or this dad? What really happens when we get into sibling rivalry, rivalries and we see each other kind of going after each other and attacking one another, we see that there's this, this broken heart within the family that happens. And I don't know of too many other destructive elements in any relationship more than a heart of unforgiveness. I can't tell you of anything that is more destructive to any relationship, particularly within a family, especially between siblings, than a heart to not forgive. 
when we hold up that grudge, when we determine that, that no matter how wrong we are, we were wronged by someone even more, or my way is the best way or the only way, or I was embarrassed by, or my ego is, is, is on trial here, whatever the case may be, I'm going to hold up in my heart malice and discontent and anger and frustration, and I'm going to treat that person the way that I'm feeling, and I'm not going to forgive them because that's not my job to forgive them. After all, it's them. They did this to me. They don't deserve forgiveness from me. I got to tell you, those are destructive, terrible words, and they just wreak havoc inside of an individual's heart and inside of a family, particularly among siblings. We see this with Abraham and his children. We saw it immediately with, with Isaac and Ishmael, the first two sons born to Abraham. And they fought and they fought and they fought and God actually separated them and pushed Ishmael on and raised up Isaac. And Isaac learned from his father and he saw that example and he would go on and he would have a set of twins named Jacob and Esau. Y'all hear them? If you have your Bible this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 33. And this morning what I want to communicate with you as we, we walk through a couple of verses here is that forgiveness is not just taught, it has to be modeled. We, we can't just force our children, parents, to, 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 to forgive one another. We have to model that. We have to show them that in our own relationships. They have, to, they have to catch it as well as have it taught to them. And so if you are making notes this morning, I'd write this one down because I'm going to say this a whole lot this morning. Forgiveness has to be taught and modeled. We can't just say one thing and do something else. And many, many a time, it's going to be our responsibility to begin the process of forgiveness. And it is indeed a process. It works on all kinds of facets. And it's going to be our responsibility to work through forgiveness, both giving forgiveness, earning forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, seeking that forgiveness, and truly actually forgiving someone. We all have a role in that, every single one of us. And I know, listen, I know we've all been hurt by someone, especially someone in our family, somehow, some way. That's just the nature of relationships. And it's hard sometimes. And there's no better place to kind of see some of that stuff kind of unravel than when there's a major family event like a wedding or a reunion or a funeral. Those high emotional milestones in life seem to bring out the worst in family, doesn't it? Christmas, when we decided, I mean, I love that show Christmas Vacation. But isn't it interesting when everybody shows up at his house, how chaos kind of ensues? And there's Clark standing out the window going, this is the Christmas I always wanted and then he's like doing everything he can to not spend time with all those people. Jacob and Esau would be two twins born to Isaac. Jacob's name means deceiver, by the way. He was properly named. Esau was the firstborn, and he was a hairy man. Remember that? Some of y'all remember this story. Genesis chapter 32, you can go back and see some of this stuff. And as their father Isaac got old and he couldn't see real well, he kind of had to rely upon some of his other senses, and, 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 and their mother really liked Esau more so than what she liked Isaac, or excuse me, like um, she, wow, she liked Jacob more than she liked Esau. Don't write that down. Now, here's kind of a problem, right? Now, kids who have, have other siblings and stuff, I'm sure you probably feel like your parents favor one child over the other. No, none of you? Now, as a parent, I can tell you, I absolutely have a favorite in my house. And that's my wife. We do love our children differently but the same, don't we, parents? 
and it is hard to describe and explain that. It's even harder sometimes for that to be received. But we do love our children different but the same, especially because they have such different languages that they respond to, because they are very different personalities. You can't always treat them exactly the same, but you have to treat them exactly the same in different ways. Does that make sense? If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You're a child, that's okay. We don't think you know anything anyway. Just kidding. Jacob and Esau, they had this fight towards the very end of their father's life, and they, the younger brother tricked the older brother out of the blessing and the birthright, which means he got all the inheritance, which means he got all of his father's blessing, which means that his name was going to be elevated throughout the community as the chosen child to, pre, uh, to, to, to take over his father's business and life and all of his assets and everything else. And this obviously created an issue. It created such an issue, partially because mom sided with one child over the other and helped perpetuate this deception, which, by the way, is a very bad plan, moms. Don't do that. She perpetuated this deception, and it continued on so much that after the time for their father's death had come and the grieving was over, Esau said this in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. It said, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. I've seen my kids fight. I've seen some of your kids fight, but I've never seen something so bad where one brother wants to kill the other. I'm gonna tell you something, as much as we may not see that firsthand, or appreciate that, when Christ says that when we kill somebody in our heart, we're guilty of that too. There's been a couple of times where I've, I've seen my kids wanna go at it. I've seen kids wanna truly do harm to one another, not just emotional, but we also know that in this fallen world, those things actually happen, and we know what happens whenever we hold a grudge. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you hold a grudge, because I think the answer would be all of you on some level, and it's tough, because when we hold that grudge, we actually put a stranglehold on it, and it grips, and it begins to root inside of our hearts, and it dictates a whole lot of our other behaviors and feelings, and how we respond and react to one another. And so Jacob and Esau kind of go their separate ways, and, and even though Esau did not receive his father's blessing, he still was a very successful person. And he went on to be very successful, and, and Jacob went on to be very successful and have a whole lot of sons and several wives. And throughout the process of the two of them being separated, it was inevitable at some point that they would eventually come back together. Many, many, many years had passed. They didn't have text messaging, Facebook messaging. They didn't have emails or anything like that. They didn't talk to one another, let alone ask for forgiveness or check on the other one or get together at holidays. They just held a grudge and went on about their life, and that thing stewed and stewed and stewed and stewed and stewed and stewed and stewed. Now, parents and grandparents that are in the room, do you know that you're mad at a family member but can't remember why? But you just know it happened 20 years ago? Am I making that up? I don't know what it is about that, but our memory goes short on the details, but we just know we're not satisfied. We're not happy about what they did to us sometime whenever that thing happened, you know, the other day, whatever the case may be. But a grudge holds up in our hearts, and it gets to the place where even, even Esau said, I'll kill my brother once I've finished mourning my father. That's serious stuff. Jacob and Esau would finally come back together, and, and, and Jacob actually, having known that he had deceived his brother and cheated him out of his birthright and out of his inheritance, heard that his brother was coming and wanted to see him. And so Jacob, still feeling the guilt of that, 
decided that he needed to take measures to protect his family from something he had done many, 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 many years ago. And it says this in Genesis 32, 7 and 8. It says, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him, his family, into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels came as well. And he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Now here's the problem with a family grudge match. The innocent are still going to pay the price for this. And this is crazy when you think about this, that Jacob at some point looked and he says, all right, I'm going to divide my family into two groups, and hopefully he can't hurt all of us. But the ones who do, do get hurt, hey, thank you guys. Y'all on the left side of the room this morning, thank you so much for protecting the right side of the room. You probably have no idea what's going on. It really was a bad day to sit on this side. But, hey, that's family for you, right? I mean, I can't imagine how he could even come to this reality. I mean, how do you pick which person goes where? I mean, it's kind of like when you get in the car with your family and you decide who does and who doesn't sit next to each other and when you need to change and shift that around. And, of course, in today's day and age, you determine what you do or don't watch on all of the screens that are inside of your television for the long car ride. And how do you do that? This grudge was so bad after all those years, Jacob was still distressed about meeting his brother that he thought for sure that he was going to actually hold up on his promise to kill him. And so he divided up his family. But then he goes on in Genesis 32, 24, and 20, 28. says, Jacob was left alone. So he divides all of his family. He actually puts them out in all these different quarters, and he kind of prioritizes his favorite wife and children towards the back with him and then everybody else after that. So that if, if, if Esau truly was going to kill him and his family, he was going to hurt all these other people, but Jacob would be back there. And then it says this, and this is kind of one of the problems with holding a grudge and not having a heart full of, of forgiveness. It says, after he, had, he was alone, a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. So he was left by himself. Could you imagine that? I've just determined the death order of my family should my brother, who hates me, decide to attack and kill my family. And now I have nobody with me in my own family to even be around with, so he's back there by himself. Now, I'm going to tell you something, friends. One of the scariest, two scariest places for me to be, and I think for many of us to be, is alone by ourselves and alone with our God. Because when we're alone with ourselves, our character comes out. And when we're alone with our God, we have, to, we have to really pay attention to the things that he's trying to get out of us. And if there is unrepented sin in our hearts, if there's issues in our own lives with our relationship with God or with those around us, spending that time without the distractions of everything else that goes on in our world means that God has to deal with me directly, which means I have to deal with God directly. And that ought to be pretty frightening for some of us. It ought to be pretty frightening for all of us, even though we know that, God is faithful and just to forgive us if we'll ask for that. But it says, Jacob was left alone and he wrestled with a man until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that he was wrenched. And as he wrestled with the man, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, I read all that forward part of the story that we're going to get to in Genesis 33 in just a second, that you kind of understand a little bit about forgiveness and one of the great challenges that we have in forgiving others, especially if we're like Esau who holds a grudge and we're that person who has this grudge held against us, we actually sometimes begin to turn into who they think we are. Now, some call that a self-fulfilling prophecy, but we, we become who these people are by our actions and our attitudes, especially if it's a festering, negative, hurtful, 
defensive attitude over and over again, you kind of become that person. And so while Jacob is alone, he wrestles with this, this angel perhaps, and he wrestles with him and he says, no, I will not stop wrestling with you until you bless me. Now this is a very similar thing because he had stolen the blessing from his brother and he took it outright and now he's asking for it and he thinks, again, I can do it by force. I can earn this blessing by out wrestling this person. And this person or this angel perhaps is this, this messenger from God on some level says, well, look, son, you can't really win this battle, so I'll just dislocate your hip, and you can't wrestle with me anymore. But yet his persistence was so that he was begging for God's blessing. Now, his blessing was so important because he thought, if God would bless me, then no harm could come to me or my family from my brother. After all, I took his blessing, and now I want to take God's blessing, and I want to put that to my advantage. But the problem was is that what really changed is that what this, this person really rinsed out of him in the process of dislocating his hip, he rinsed out of Jacob more character in him because the name Israel means struggles with God. Gee, that's going on still today, isn't it? The nation of Israel, the people of Israel are struggling with God. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we're told that we're grafted into this nation of, it, of Israel. So we're also heirs of the king. And in such case, we're still struggling with God, aren't we? We're followers and family members of those who are still struggling with God. But Jacob has this problem because even though his name has now been changed, his attitude is still changing a little bit, but he's still afraid of his brother because of his brother's promise that he would hold a grudge against him, he would mourn his father, and then he would go kill Jacob for having stolen from him. Do you see generationally how this continues to fold over and over and over and over again? That's why we want to try to get the conflicts resolved within family as quickly as possible. That's why we want, we want to teach our kids to, to forgive as quickly as possible, to not hold on to that grudge. And I know it's really hard to talk about forgiveness because you say, well, I'll forgive that person, but I don't want anything else to do with them ever again. That's conditional forgiveness. Now, don't misunderstand me because I do believe this. I think that we do have people in our lives, and sometimes it's family, that we do have to be a little cautious about how far we let them into our lives if they're going to be prone to hurt us. However, that doesn't mean we can't not forgive them. Because that forgiveness is not just about them, it's about what goes on in your heart too. So Jacob's scared. His brother wants to meet with him. So he divides up his family, and he sends all these herds of animals trying to buy his brother's favor. So if you have your Bible, look with me in Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 4. It says this, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau. Now remember the last words he said was, I'm going to kill you. This is the last time they talked together. He says, I'm going to kill you. I like his voice much better, by the way. <laughs> Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming, his 400 men with him. So now he said, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to bring my army with me, and I'm going to kill you. This is going on in his mind. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. So he, he decided the death order, basically. And he himself went out on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to, to meet Jacob and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. And Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Now, this is a very interesting sight because he divides, he divides up his family and puts them in this order. And then he goes out 
maybe hoping that I could just, I can take the blunt of this and the rest of my family might be saved. So we're seeing his attitude change a little bit, having wrestled and having his name change. His attitude starts to change a little bit, but still knowing that he had done wrong to his brother that had not been atoned for or dealt with or forgiven or asked for forgiveness, he still runs out to meet his brother and his brother runs out and does something crazy. He hugs him and kisses him and tells him he's so glad to meet him. Now, if you read the rest of chapter 33, what you're going to find is Jacob, to, that, to the end of chapter 33, Jacob gets to a place where he's still not quite sure that Esau is not bringing him in to t- exact his revenge. He's still dealing with this paranoia of how he has done something wrong, how he deserves to be punished for that, how his brother said he's going to kill him, and he wants to do that and ought to do that, because to that point, there's still no conversation regarding forgiveness between the two of them. Now, I don't know about you, but Esau, who actually would be the father of the Edomites, so anytime you read through the Old Testament, you see the Edomites are attacking, you'll see that Esau is constantly, and the Edomites are constantly attacking the Israelites, and this will go on and on and on and on and on until the exile, until the Edomites are finally wiped out. And so even though the two brothers may reconcile at this moment, their families still have issues with one another. This is the problem with a lack of forgiveness in our hearts, especially within our, our families. And so he brings him in, he bows down, he sends all these herds of goats and all these other things. And so Jacob's still trying to buy favor with his family, with his brother, to try to get this forgiveness from him, instead of truly just sitting down and talking with him. Now, we do that too, don't we? Hey, I'll make you a cake, or I'll do something nice for you, or I'll let you have the biggest portion, or you go first. And you can kind of watch that. Parents, you're probably, you're probably seeing this in your mind with your kids some days. You can kind of watch when your kids kind of wrong one another, and the one knows they kind of did the wrong thing, and they're, they're kind of doing all these nice things to kind of placate the situation so they never really have to talk about it. No, no, you go ahead. And you've never seen your kids be so nice to one another in your entire life until they're trying to work out some conflict without actually working out some conflict. Until they're trying to, 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 to make something better than what it was without having to actually admit their own guilt or admit their own wrongdoing, but they're just trying to make the situation a little bit better. We see that in other relationships outside of just family and kids all the time. Anybody got a neighbor? You've ever had a, a dispute about a fence before? Where does the fence go? How does it get built? Oh, no, 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 you go ahead and just do that your way or whatever, and you kind of give into these concessions, but you're still angry with them. You're still frustrated with them about what went on. Maybe a car accident or something like that where somebody hits you, and you're like, oh, no, just give me your, your ID and everything else, and you walk away talking bad about that person and everything else. You may never see him again, but still there's a relationship challenge there that's not dealt with. And that's exactly what's going on here with with Jacob and Esau. And the reason why I want to highlight this family is because what you see is, is that it doesn't matter how long this wrong happened, how long ago it was, it still has to be dealt with. Time does not heal all wounds. I know we like to say that a lot of times, but it does not. In fact, time actually brings about festering and gangrene and deeper infections, and it actually hurts these wounds, particularly with family, over and over and over again. And we're told throughout the the, the story of, of the whole Old Testament is this beautiful story of forgiveness and God wanting to forgive his children for sinning against him. And over and over again, we try to do all these things to try to make it a little better situation. We make these sacrifices to God, but we never give him our full heart. And then we distrust God when he doesn't do for us what we think he ought, ought to be doing. Or he doesn't just automatically forgive us and just make us better people just instantly or he, he doesn't allow us to let go of the things that are harming our families and our relationships. 
And so we see this over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament. And you see this portion of when we get to Jesus in the New Testament to help us understand that until we deal with these relational hurts, particularly within our family, there's going to be a lot of elements of our life and the lives of our other family members and those that are watching our family that are not figuring out this whole idea that, that forgiveness can't just be something we talk about, can't be just something that we say, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. I probably should forgive my brother or my sister or my cousin or my aunt or my mom or my dad or even my children. I probably should forgive them, but it has to go more than just theory, right? We have to not just teach that, we have to model that. And I actually believe today that one of the great challenges we have, and this is, this is on parents a lot, is one of the great challenges we have is that we don't model some of the behaviors we still expect from our kids. This is the time where kids go amen, right? We don't necessarily model it. We have this expectation and we teach you, and this is the way it ought to be. I remember years ago, I took a bunch of kids on a, on a youth mission trip, and I had this, this rule that if you, if you seriously violate my rules or you damage something or harm somebody or whatever, we're going to call your parents, but I never like to call before 2.30 in the morning because when I call a mom or dad and wake them up from a dead sleep to tell them how awful their child has behaved, I want to make sure I have their undivided attention. I don't want to call them while they're at work or at dinner or whatever. So 2.30 in the morning was my peak time to call a parent and let them know that their kid had messed up big time. And as I'm talking to this young man, because I'm not going to let that student go to sleep either. If I'm going to stay up and wait and talk to mom and dad, when I talk to mom and dad, they're going to be right there in the room with me, and then I'm going to put them on the phone together. I mean, it's a whole process, because if you're going to do this, we're going to make sure we understand the severity of this if i got to call mom and dad. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm with this, this student. We're talking about different things, and I, I knew mom and dad, and, and uh, we'd gone to church together for a long time. And, and I just said, hey, man, what, what's going on here? How do you think your dad's going to react whenever we're— I get the phone call from him, and I kid you not, this broke my heart probably more than anything else that kid did. He says, well, it'll probably be like every other time. Dad will probably quote some Bible verse at me, ground me, and make me pay for this out of my own pocket, and then I can't go anywhere for a month. And I said, say that again? He goes, yeah, Dad will probably quote some Bible verse at me and ground me, make me pay for it, and then, you know, we'll just go on about our way. And so for the next two hours, from about midnight to two, he and I talked about this a little bit, and I saw so much harm in this student whose mom and dad had tried really hard to help him understand the truth of God's word, but he felt beaten and abused by it. But he never really talked about how mom and dad modeled some of the things they were teaching him. They just talked about maybe making my kid better than what I am, making my kid's situation a little better than what mine was, but didn't actually model that behavior. You know the old do as I say, not as I do. And I watched this unfold in this kid's heart. And so at 2.30 in the morning when we called Dad, he gets on the phone and he says to Dad, he goes, hey, Dad, yes, yes, sir, sure, yes, yes. And those were his only answers. Dad wants to talk to you. Okay, I'm like, hey, what do you want to do? How much is it? And I told him, he goes, okay, I'll meet you with a check at the airport when we get home. And it was done. Kid didn't learn anything from the whole situation. And it wasn't my job to teach him all of that. But I'm going to tell you something. I watch that unfold like I watch a lot of things unfold. We don't take responsibility for our actions. And the reason why we don't take responsibility for our actions sometimes is because we're pushed into doing things instead of modeled how to do things. Now, I'm not saying you're bad parents. I'm not saying that you get it all right all the time either because we're all humans and we make mistakes and errors. But when it comes to forgiveness, I think one of the greatest challenges we have in our own individual hearts and within the body of Christ and within our families is not just teaching that forgiveness but modeling that forgiveness. 
and we have to show what that looks like. And so I want to show you a couple things that I think are really important for us to understand about forgiveness. And this is a challenging topic because it hurts us in such a way that we have to give up some of our ego and some of our self. We have to let our emotions be a little bit raw, and we have to be willing for someone to say, okay, you're asking for forgiveness, but you're not worth it. I'm not going to forgive you. And I don't think that it's enough sometimes to say, well, I'm going to go into with the right heart. I'm going try to try to seek forgiveness. If that person doesn't forgive me, well, that's on them. Well, that is true to a point, but that ought to still break your heart and grieve you when that relationship is still not repaired. And particularly within a family, when you've got kids who, who are, or, or, I mean, maybe when your kids walk up and you you ever force your kids to apologize to somebody? I mean, I, I've had people tell me, I, I don't force my kids to apologize. They should know better by now. And I'm like, but how are they going to know that they need to go apologize if you don't force them sometimes, right? It's like, tell me you only spank them when you're, when you're not angry. Like, when else are you going to spank them? It doesn't work like that. I used to force my kids to apologize all the time. I love that they're here this morning because my favorite story to tell about them is that when the two of them were fighting, they couldn't have been three or four. The two of them were fighting, and it was a whole year in my space, and I'm in your space, and they're back and forth, and I was not a very good dad then. I'm better now, not much better, but they'll tell you I'm awesome, right, kids? Yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of had enough. I was frustrated, and I caught myself getting a little bit frustrated. And I'm like, man, the two of you have got to reconcile. You've got to figure out how to get along. It's the only brother and sister that you have. You've got to figure out how to get along. And so I said, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. So I got one of those, those, uh, those pool floaties, you know, the water wings. And I put one arm of each child in one water wing and made them sit on the step together. And I said, the first one of you to pull your arm out gets a spanking. And I watched those two sit on that front step and just do this for hours, you know, what felt like. It was probably like 10 minutes. Their mom came in and rescued them, the whole thing. Like I felt undercut as a parent immediately. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. But I watched the two of them, they continued to fight, and I realized, you know, that's probably not the best idea because now I'm forcing them to basically get into a grudge match right here. And instead of trying to forgive one another and work these things out, I think they were trying to figure out how to get the other one to pull the, the arm out to see that the other one could get a spanking. Total backfire. Now you guys know. Here you go, 20 years later. But we got to model this thing. And the first thing I want you to write down this morning if you're writing anything is that forgiveness is not just taught, it's modeled. So the first thing we need to do is teach forgiveness. We have to teach what forgiveness actually is and what it looks like. And forgiveness starts with acknowledging our own sins. And parents, one of the best ways we can do that with our young children, and even with our adult children sometimes, always, is that when you mess up or you make a mistake, you need to own that. You need to talk to them about that. You need to grab them by the face or by the arms or whatever and say, you know what? Dad made a mistake. I own that. I own every part of that. Psalm 32.5 tells us, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It, we're not going to get to a place to where we're forgiven or earn the forgiveness or even get Christ's forgiveness in our lives until we actually acknowledge our own sin. And sometimes that sin is what we've done to God, and other times it's how we've sinned against one another. And there's no seeking that forgiveness because as much as I would love to believe that there's this unconditional forgiveness between individuals, there just seems to be so much humanity in us that we just can't always get there, especially if we're hurt and especially if we're hurting. And so whenever I do something that harms someone else, the first thing I really need to do is I need to take acknowledgement of how I have wronged that person and how I've sinned against that person. 
And, and the reason why I would do that is because that's the same type of relationship between me and Jesus Christ is when I realize that I have sinned against you and I don't deserve your forgiveness. And you're not just going to lay it out there for me and I don't have to do anything, but you've done all the heavy lifting for me. And so when I can acknowledge my own sin, we can get back in the right place of having this conversation to realize what you have actually done for me and that you have indeed forgiven me. And I haven't earned it and I don't deserve it, but because I have acknowledged my sin against you, you're willing and just to forgive me all my sins and cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. And I think that works the same way when we teach that. And there's no better way to do that than than in a position of leadership, whether you be a mom or a dad or a firstborn child or a boss or, or a volunteer coordinator or wherever, when you make a mistake, own that. And own that mistake in such a way that it's not just self-deprecating. We're not, we're not going to gain a whole lot by that, but just saying, you know what, I messed up here. That was on me. And I'm sorry that I did that. And I want to do whatever it takes to earn your heart back so that you can trust me again. This is exactly the same cry that we have from, for, 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 from Christ for us is he's saying, I want to forgive you, but you have to acknowledge your need for forgiveness. And parents, especially when we teach that level of forgiveness of owning our sins so that those, those transgressions can be taken care of, we'll watch that happen as they become young adults and adults and they make different decisions going throughout their life. But if we teach them how to hold a grudge and how to talk bad about family members, talk about bad about people at church and all these other things, guess what they'll grow up to be? Just like us. They'll do exactly the same way, perhaps maybe even to the end. The next thing we have to to do is we have to give forgiveness. And forgiveness ought to be our default. Now, I don't know about Miss Maple back there, but I can talk about me. I can tell you that forgiveness is not always my default. In fact, it's not my default. Either it is or it isn't, right? It's not always my default. I don't always think after someone wrongs me, you know, I just think I ought to forgive that person. You know? I don't always think, you know, Gosh, you just did such wrong to me. I I forgive you. I wish I could tell you I was that person, but to be honest with you, I have to process through that anger and that frustration and that shame sometimes of how they treated me or the embarrassment or what the case may be. But a lot of that has to do with having that attitude and that activity behind giving forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14 is a great place to look. It says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That was almost like this heavenly sound, right? Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. As a Christ follower, particularly as a parent Christ follower, it is probably one of the most hypocritical things we do is to not act like our Savior. The one whose every one of our sins has violated Every one of our sins put him on that cross. And to not offer forgiveness because Christ first forgave us, to not love because he first loved us, to not reflect the fatherhood that he's given to us in our relationships is to not give forgiveness as a default, to hold that grudge in such a way that we can't get through that and it hurts our relationships. And the last thing I want to show you this morning is that we just need to seek forgiveness. Now, for me personally, this is probably one of the areas that I struggle in the most. And pride and arrogance, shame, remorse, all those types of things often stop me from going to someone who I need to forgive or I need forgiveness from and asking them, will you forgive me? 
It's a very powerful thing, actually, when you ask someone to forgive you, regardless of what they say or how they respond to that. But it's a really powerful thing to do so. And it's power that's in your life, not necessarily in theirs. Because it is true that if they decide not to forgive you, that's for them to deal with. But if you decide not to ask for it, then you have to deal with all the consequences of this. Esau and Jacob are great examples of that. They had all this other success out there, but the relationship that started off bad, it stayed that way to the point to where Jacob never asked his brother for forgiveness. And by the time he got to the place where they were going to meet again, and he's thinking maybe he'll just forget about this or whatever, he was afraid that his brother was actually going to hold true and kill him. Luke 17, 3 and 4 says, So watch yourselves. If your brother and sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, that's one of those verses in the Bible that I'm like, what in the world? What is this 70 times seven things? And, and why, how can this person keep acting this way towards me? And, and I just know that this is their character and this is who they are and this is what they're going to do. But if they come back to me and they, they ask me for forgiveness, you're telling me I got to forgive them? I heard a pastor say this one time. He says, yeah, but that, that 70 times 8 was not in the rule. It was 70 times 7, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with the number of times that you forgive someone or how many times they come asking for it. It has everything to do with your heart and how you love that person in such a way to say that I see Christ forgiving me 70 times 7 and then some for all the sins that I commit against him. But to be more Christ-like, I must learn to seek that forgiveness and I have to seek it out by modeling it and how I return it to someone when they come asking for it. And when someone earnestly comes asking for forgiveness, we ought to give it to them no matter what. And I don't know about you, but I see a lot of family relationships constantly be in chaos because we've got that wall put up in such a way where I can't be harmed again. And so if I can't be harmed again, then I don't have to deal with anything after that. And so many other elements of that relationship are broken to where I don't get to enjoy the blessing of this family that God's given me. And it's really, really hard to consider a family member, particularly a sibling sometimes, who's known to having picked on you or always been a little meaner to you or whatever the case may be, to look at them as a blessing from the Lord. Especially if you've done some things to harm them or their attitude is completely different than yours. And this applies both for believers and non-believers within our family that we especially as believers need to make sure that when someone in our family wrongs us, that we need to be seeking that forgiveness or vice versa when we wrong them. There's no greater testimony, I think, to an unbelieving family member or person in your life than to walk up to them and say, I messed up. I made a mistake. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? It actually jacks with people in a crazy way because they look and go, wait a minute, what's this all about? And furthermore, it takes it to a place where the relationship is damaged, and you know it, and maybe you didn't do whatever it is, but you walk up and say, you know what, I don't know what happened here, but I, I think I need to ask you for forgiveness today. And I need to seek forgiveness from you in such a way that we can get this relationship put back on track. And when that person kind of replays it in their mind, going, why are you asking me for forgiveness? I'm the one that wronged you. It just messes with them. Maybe that's your motivation, I don't know, but what your motivation ought to be is how do I put this relationship back in the right place? Wherever your position is in life and whatever is going on with you, forgiveness is going to be a powerful tool, but the lack of forgiveness is going to be a powerful weapon for the enemy to use against you to continue to tear you down. 
And those relationships that used to be so great and those happy moments that you have here and there, whatever the case may be, they're not going to last and survive even the pettiest of things when there's a lack of forgiveness going on in those relationships that matter so much. You know, students, first of all, I want to tell you, I love that our students serve so much in our church. Y'all do some amazing things, every one of you. Thank you so much for what you do. And you're here because mom and dad most likely are making you be here today. I get that. That's just kind of being a kid. But at some point, you're going to leave mom and dad's house, and you're going to have to make decisions regarding your own life. And you're going to have to determine how you're going to, to, to exercise your faith and what you're going to believe in and how you're going to treat people and do everything else. And you're going to look at things that mom and dad did, and you're going to say, I want to be more like dad. And I'll just tell you, the older I get, the more my dad was right. But when I was a younger man, the last thing I wanted to hear was all that wisdom and truth. Because it frustrated me because it put, a, it, it put a halt to how I wanted to live my life. Father did indeed knows, be, knows best, and he still does. And so students, I, just, I, I want you to hear this from me first and foremost. Your mom and dads are awesome, but they're not perfect. They're going to make a lot more mistakes than what they've already made. I promise you that. But there's not a parent that I have ever met, even the bad parents, and I've met some bad parents. There's not a parent that I've ever met that doesn't want better for their kids than what they have. And when you see mom and dad humble themselves and seek forgiveness from God, from family members, and from you, you take note of that. Because that's one of the most powerful lessons they can ever teach you is how not to hold a grudge that damages your heart for years and years and years to come. The most powerful thing they can teach you is what it is to love people unconditionally, and it starts with how they model that behavior. They want better for you than what you may know, and you'll probably never appreciate that. They're not going to hold a grudge against that, but they are going to try to teach you. And moms and dads, go back and read that story of Jacob and Esau. See that God had a plan for them. See that how you teach your kids and how you, how you model your behaviors before your kids is one of the most important things you can really show them is forgiveness. Because it's hard. And we don't all outlive those who harmed us like Miss Mabel did. Let's pray together this morning. Father, you forgave us when we did not deserve to be forgiven. But Lord, you knew that we were going to need that forgiveness and you knew that we were going to need someone to fix our relationship with you, with our creator. And God, as parents especially, we have been placed in a position of responsibility that we ought to model and to show and to demonstrate our kids not just how to live right now in the moment, but how they can take those tools so that when they're old, they will not depart from you. Father, for our, our, our kids especially, we're, we're reminded that you're told that they're to obey their moms and dads, that this is the first commandment with a promise, and that, God, you desire great plans to prosper them and to have a great future. But, Lord, in every relationship, especially in a family relationship, there's nothing more destructive than a heart that will not forgive. And so, God, as Christ followers, those that are in the room that have accepted Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, God, I pray they don't get to a place in their life where they are still harboring or holding on to some, some things that they just need to forgive somebody for. That, Lord, there is great freedom that is released when we forgive someone for how they've wronged us. And that those grudges are replaced with grace. 
that God in the ashes of a burned down relationship that beauty can come out of that. And so God, I pray for moms and dads this morning and for grandparents and those of, of influence in anybody's life that they would model forgiveness, not just teach it, not just give the, the three-point story on how to forgive somebody, but Father, they would model that and how they act and live and communicate with others. And Father, I pray for our students this morning as school comes to an end this week and as the summer starts up and as summer are moving on to the next stage in their life. Lord, I pray that, that whatever those relationships they may be leaving behind or however the, the school year may end, that, God, you won't let anything fester in their lives, that they'll learn what it is to seek forgiveness and to give it back. Father, more than anything, we thank you that Christ has forgiven us, that through his blood our sins have been washed away. And that, Lord, we'll sin again, but when we come back to you, that you, we are faithful to ask you for that forgiveness. You said that you would indeed forgive us for all of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. God, we don't know when our last day is, but I pray that whenever that is, that we won't get to a place that we're still holding a grudge against those who are no longer with us. But through your grace that we are indeed set free. And so, God, we thank you that Jesus was the one who captivated our hearts, Lord, but broke the chains of sin from our lives. Thank you for Jesus and for what he's done for us. And we ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? Lance is going to continue.